Welcome to In the Fig of It, Provident Losses weekly podcast with me, Colin Lambert, Managing Editor of PL. A couple of uh, items I wanted to discuss briefly before we get to this week's guest. Um, firstly, Friday before last, I published a story on EBS's new matching engine plans um, as part of their move to the Globex technology stack um, within CME. Um, generally speaking, the feedback to that has been positive, I, I think I'd have to say. There's um, a, a sense and a suggestion from certain players that actually um, the three matching ending model has been open to gaming and that certain players, generally speaking in the higher frequency space, have been gaming it. I mean, I think EBS has done quite a lot to negate or dilute that behavior, but the suspicion, unfortunately, is still there and it still sticks. So generally speaking, it's been seen as a positive move, one that the company probably had to make. Now, from my point of view, I could see this also as part of a broader, um, more reasoned approach to what happens on clubs in general in FX. You know, paradoxically, you'd look at it and say, well, you know, these guys are in the business of volume. But in reality, the suspicions over the ecosystem and you know, the natural wariness of anything in an anonymous environment means that um, volume is disappearing. I kind of see this as you know, not only this move, but you know, other moves at other platforms as well as um, an admission that it's no longer um, a biz sustainable business if you just chase, you know, if you just look after the highest bro payers. Um, it's probably taking on more of the relationship model of other platforms. So I think people want a reasonable environment in which to trade. And I sense a different club model will come out of this. Not so much in terms of, you know, it may not be a different name. It could be one of the existing players. But I sense that what we will have and what EBS is doing here in my view is they're giving up a little bit of speed for a model that encourages people to post real interest. I mean, in the past, I've often been a little bit confused as to why people would even consider streaming a two-way price to a club. Because quite frankly, you know, I, I remember having a great conversation with someone in the e-trading space years ago, and they were com complaining endlessly about being, every time they were given at 10 on the club, it immediately went nine and a half offered. And my point was, well, a club is an expression of interest venue. If you don't want to buy at 10, don't bid there. So I sense what we're getting now is, is a more realistic approach to what is needed for a club to be successful. Whether it can be enough to grow volumes, I'm not sure. But certainly we need a fair, what, what is perceived to be a fair and equitable you know, a model with you know, equal access and opportunity. Um, starting to sound like a politician. The other piece of news this week um, was the Refinitiv survey, which we published a story on, um, saying that spreads were the biggest challenge for survey respondents, and particularly in the hedge fund and bank space. Um, I'd just like to know why. Why are spreads a challenge? I think we can all agree that FX is a very competitive market when it comes to you know the four or five clubs that are out there, let alone aggregator platforms, let alone multi-dealer platforms, and of course the dozens of single-dealer platforms, I think pricing in FX, generally speaking, is a fair reflection of the risk being taken. So FX is a competitive market, so therefore the spread is the spread. 
if it's 50 points wide, it is because there is, you know, the combined brains of the FX market making community believe the level of risk appropriate is there. None of them have an X, so therefore the spread is 50 points. How is that a challenge? To me, you know, we're asking an LP, what they're saying is, well, I want to do my business. I think the same survey said that um, more than 60% thought risk tra- streaming risk transfer was their preferred um, execution channel. Fair enough. But that comes with a risk for the LP. We have this age of entitlement where we think, I'm entitled to a one-pit price no matter what the conditions. Markets have never been like that. They never will be or they never should be like that. Because the fact is, spread reflects risk. Why should we expect LPs to sit in front of a runaway steamroller? Because that's effectively what's happening. If you're quoting too tight a spread, you are going to get hurt repeatedly. These businesses have an obligation to shareholders, to their employees, to protect them. There is, There should be no entitlement in this, um, in this sphere. Spreads are what they are. So why should they be cited as the biggest challenge? Beyond me, I've got to be honest. Um, what I would say on that survey is that um, 31%, I think, claimed access to liquidity was their, their biggest challenge. Well, I think you could now reverse engineer that back and say, well, actually, um, if only 31% of you are worried about access to liquidity, that tells me that your LPs are actually doing a pretty good job because you can clearly get a price when you need it. What it is, is you just don't like the price you're going to get. Well, I'm sorry, folks. Welcome to the real world. I did want to pay another $3,500 for a Malaysian Airlines ticket the other week. But if I want to get home, I had to do it because that was the spread they're putting on it. Um, the sooner we can actually make more people realize this, I think the better the FX market will be. You know, the data can help, but it's a question of them really understanding the risks that LPs are undertaking in these market conditions. You know, a spread is a spread. The challenge should not, the spread should not be a challenge. What I think we're seeing in this, frankly, is just unnecessary complaint. And on that negative note, we'll now go very positive and I'll be back in just a moment um, with this week's guest. Did you know that if you sign up before September 1st, you can subscribe to Profit and Loss for just £130 sterling for a whole 12 months? That's a huge 30% discount on your regular subscription rate. Or pay just £230 for two years. Go to www.profit-loss.com plans and sign up today. Or email info at profit-loss.com for more information to ensure that you never miss out on the latest FX news. The pandemic has highlighted um, the need for sort of more technology solutions, I think it could be argued. Um, thus far on this podcast, and actually generally in a lot of my conversations, we have tended to focus on the top tier institutions and maybe some of the <clears throat> major um, multi-dealer platforms. But obviously, you know, the foreign exchange market is a, is, a, is a hydra and there are plenty of other players out there. So um, I'm delighted to be joined by um, an old friend of the podcast, and of me, I'm proud to say, uh, John Ashworth, CEO of Kaplan Systems. Um, John, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Colin. Very good morning. Hope you're staying safe. Yes, we're, we're, we're wandering around. Um, so, John, I'd like to talk to you uh, maybe about your observations around what's been happening in that sort of regional specialist bank 
um, segment of the market. I mean, obviously, you know, we've got a working from home distributed workforce, um, you know, and all the changes that brings with it. What has been your observation of, of about where these banks have really needed to sort of, you know, or, or really been helped by technology solutions? Well, the first thing to say is I think we've all been impressed with how the industry has responded to the pandemic. Um, Of course, the big banks, the top tier institutions have got huge resources and infrastructure teams who can rally around and get second trading sites and third trading sites and bubbles and people will quit from home um, to to enable to carry out their operations. But on the other hand, they're very large institutions. So their task is is large and, and complex. Amongst the regional banks, I think they've been doing what everyone else has been doing, which is number one focus is look after the safety of their employees. Um, number two, get infrastructure working so that people can be deployed at home and whatever protocols for the trading room itself are observed, either with a minimum skeleton staff or second sites in DR centers. Um, so basically, they can service their clients. Um, and thirdly, do all of the above in a in a completely compliant way. So the, the the immediate heroes of the moment, I think, have been the infrastructure teams working at banks, the IT departments, who've just been making all this happen. Yeah. So with that in place, what we're seeing is that everyone's enjoyed a temporary uptick in revenue and, dare I say, profit, given all the volatility that's swirling around. I think in some cases that's settling down now. And we're seeing a slightly more sinister effect, which is that the the smaller and the medium-sized enterprises from whom the smaller regional banks get a greater percentage of their income than the larger banks. You know, these are people who, some of whom are doing very well out of the pandemic, but lots are not doing very well. So when your end client is struggling because of trading conditions, then clearly the bank's going to struggle as well. So there's a mixture of effects going on um yeah volatility is a trader's friend and everybody benefited from that in, in the first wave and then to a certain extent there's a lot of that still around but the natural business which is the bread and butter of the smaller regional banks is is plateauing a little bit and, and that would be a concern for the future mm. well i mean certainly if you look at it i mean you know the basis of the foreign exchange market is you know cross-border trade and um, international investment isn't it and and inevitably the trade aspect of it has to be has to slow down yes um, and it's like it, interestingly it's one of those things due to the sort of you know, unique infrastructure of the fx market in a way that the this flow the the impact of this diminishing flow will actually work its way up the ladder won't it because obviously it creates less value for those top two institutions so it does become um, i don't want to use the word systemic but it's the only one that springs to mind at this moment in time but it becomes a more broader impact um, for those that, you know, obviously there, there are still plenty of customers out there that are, are working very, very hard. I guess this has raised the um, importance. And I, it's not something that, in my experience, regional banks historically have, have had to worry too much about. But that's e-distribution. Because obviously going yes. to clients now has become very, very difficult, hasn't it? Well, yes. I mean, for, you know, for our own business, engaging with prospects and current clients has been impossible from a physical and, and personal point of view. We've been able to do a huge amount by Zoom. We've got current projects and things going on. 
But similarly for bank salespeople, they just, uh, other than in certain cases, and I think in certain geographies in Scandinavia, it's beginning to open up. But banks have got a tremendous focus on employee safety. So they're not going to be that liberal about letting salespeople out and um, out and about on the road, you know, engaging with clients. So a lot of it is having to be done by phone and Zoom and other video type channels. Uh, and a lot of it is also clearly on e-distribution. So there's definitely been an uptick in the use of single dealer platforms. Uh, there's been an uptick in the use of the telephone. There is increasing demand for mobile device devices. And in parallel, there's been an accelerated focus on sales efficiency. So of course, every you know, I've said this before on the podcast, you know, any sales manager in any industry would always want more effective and more efficient salespeople. Um, but the general need to take cost out of the business, I think, has been accelerated by the pandemic and people now are really focusing on on that. So, yes, trying to service adequately and provide a decent level of service to clients remotely has its own challenges. Uh, but it also can you know, necessity is the mother of invention and it can accelerate the need to get some of the rather silly client service actions such as settlement notifications and uh, limit order amendments, for example, that can perfectly easily be done electronically and in self-service rather than having to engage a salesperson on a telephone call. Uh, you know, why not do that stuff electronically and free up the precious interaction, human to human interaction, albeit by phone or video conference, uh, to more higher value uh, advisory and structuring type activities? Well, I'm sure you certainly hope the answer to this is in the uh, positive, but um, it strikes me that this whole episode would probably give another lease of life to the sort of, you know, the, the single dealer platform model amongst these sort of, you know, second, third, fourth tier banks. Well, yes, because it's the most efficient way of them yeah. both presenting their brand, but also presenting service and delivering service to the end customers. So, yes, that, that, that's definitely true. And it's not just a question of solving a puzzle of sales efficiency. Um, there are also logistical and structural things that have changed. So the whole compliance arena, um, and whether this is determined by regulatory authorities or it's determined by requirements of bank shareholders, um, second site, uh, four eyes verification of trades, for example, is something that is increasingly demanded and expected as part of the day-to-day -day workflow. By definition, the person who's inspiring the trade and the person who's authorizing the trade are less likely to be physically in the same place. They're probably both working in their respective bedrooms or offices at home. So the need to render that second authorization process you know, efficiently, uh, it, it's not a question of getting up from the desk and walking around with a with an order form in a wicker basket and getting the boss to sign it off. So I, I, I use what sounds like a trivial example, but actually it's a very real example of something where you can hollow out that process efficiently and electronically, and, uh, and the pandemic has brought about the need to do exactly that. Mm. But it's not exactly an easy thing to do from scratch. You know, if, if, I guess if someone was sitting there in March and suddenly needed to provide to create that sort of system, it's not an easy thing for them to do, is it? Uh, I don't think it's easy for them to do from scratch, particularly third-tier banks who just don't have spare resources to do that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, so this is 
turning slightly into a sales pitch for the vendor community because it's not from a software engineering point of view it's not a hard thing to do if you've done it if you've done it before actually then all you have to worry about is is wiring it up to the bank legacy systems to to render that appropriate but yeah. it's it's relatively easy for for that technology to be implemented but it but it's harder to do it from scratch and why would you do it from scratch because it's just a, a not particularly competitive or proprietary process. It's definitely something you should not be doing yourself and you yeah. should be seeking from the vendor community. And I mean, and, and yeah, yeah. it's not a sales pitch for the vendor community, but the fact is there are, there are times, particularly when you come to processes where it's very much easier to buy than build. Yes. And why would you reinvent the wheel? Why would you allocate pretty sparse, uh, skilled but nonetheless sparse technology resources to do things that you can literally buy off the shelf so the lego component analogy is used a great deal um, you can buy gearboxes and things ready-made to go into your complex lego bulldozer or tractor there's absolutely no need to build that yourself you want might want to design the tractor in a certain way or the bulldozer in a certain way but there's no need to reinvent the differential gearbox or the motor or the steering column when you can when you can get that off the shelf and, and that's exactly the analogy that we're seeing playing out in the market even the top tier banks yeah. you know they they have complex teams that are good at doing things but it's completely pointless having a team building a calendar widget in 53 different places inside the bank when when they really ought to be able to use just one mm. the other area i really wanted to talk to you about actually today was um, something I've been having quite a few conversations about over the past couple of months, and that is mobile. So what are your observations in terms, I mean, I think, you know, the mobile take up has been sporadic, but I think mainly it's because, um, actually, and funny enough at the top tier, the, the number of solutions available is actually fairly limited. What's your observation been around the use of mobile during this period? I think it's, but people who haven't had mobile solutions implemented won't have seen any uptick because there's nothing to uptick on. Yeah, if, if that's not too flippant. But as we've said before on this on this podcast, the regional banks have been pretty strong in providing retail mobile applications to their savings and loans customers, and and their customers have had no issue whatsoever with doing account balances and doing payments and doing transfers and so on and so forth using a mobile device that reticence um which is completely absent in the retail market seems to still be somewhat present in the professional and institutional market um i think you know for, for all sorts of appropriate reasons so we're seeing an uptick in mobile less for execution but more for some of the sales servicing pro processes that we spoke about earlier like you know settlement notifications or order amendments or whatever there's, there's no reason why that can't be done with a mobile device and, and there's an increasing demand for that to, to take place and i guess that mobile device is linked to the desktop application anyway exactly exactly so, so it's just it's just a different way of accessing that application there's nothing intrinsically special about mobile other than it is mobile yeah I, Carry the applications are designed with a little bit more thought than simply rendering an HTML5 image on the device. I mean, you're taking advantage oh, yes. of swiping and prodding and pressing buttons and screens being able to recognize things and microphones being sensitive and so on and so forth. But um, 
yeah, all they're really doing is taking advantage of their mobility and accessing the, the core functionality from lots of different places. Because, I mean, it's a funny one, because I was talking to someone the other day and they were saying, oh, you know, well, yeah, I use my mobile, but I only use my mobile when I'm out getting my daily exercise. Um, <laughs> and, and I said, well, if it works there, why don't you use it somewhere else? Because they've got their desktop set up at, at home now. So I guess that's kind of yes. reduced the need for the execution piece around yes mobile but yeah i mean effectively what this person was telling me was you know they do a lot of the admin and manage their business while they're going out for their daily exercise so i just hope it's not swimming yes so um yes i think the yes the the, the, his, the historical view of a desktop is that it's it's almost physically screwed down to the desk in a perfectly equipped office um i think the point is that these applications the use of the word mobile implies that it simply doesn't matter where the application is being accessed from you know whether it's a desktop or whether it's in the car or whether it's on the train or uh, as you say out for a run yeah um do you think i mean you know obviously you although it's difficult for everyone to be sort of have these face-to-face meetings you're clearly in contact with you know with your clients do you sense any sort of um consideration for the future of the business model and you know, of these institutions in financial markets generally i don't think there's any fundamental shift in what it is that banks are there to do there's the pandemic hasn't altered the fact that the banking structure is what it is because effectively it's reflecting a credit distribution process and it's reflecting relationships that low-tier banks have that are important, as you said at the start of this podcast, in funneling the flow all the way to the top of the tree, as it were. Yeah. Um, so I don't see that changing. What I do see changing is that the banks at the lower end are asking themselves some very, very tough questions about the cost of operation. They're looking at the business they're in uh, and what it really costs them to, to, to process that. If all they're providing is access to relationship and a credit um, disintermediation or intermediation process. And there's no real need for them to have all the kit and caboodle and the complex FXE trading stacks. So what we are seeing is banks higher up the food chain, reopening the whole white labeling offering and saying, we're going to provide the liquidity. You know, we'd love to talk to you because we'd love you to continue to be a distribution partner for offering out our liquidity. Um, will you know, match risk on the other side, will help assist you in operating in an agency basis. But we as the bank, whereas you know, 10, 15 years ago, we're thinking about providing the technology as well, they don't want to do that. Yeah. So we're in conversations with three banks in different parts of the world about being the technology partner to them, and they're providing liquidity as a sort of first among equals in their particular region. And you know, conducting conversations at board level that says to a smaller client bank of theirs you don't need to be in this technology business to be in the fx business Hmm. so i think what the pandemic has done it hasn't altered the fundamental structure of the market but it has caused people to accelerate their thinking and planning that they were already doing about trying to really hollow out the economic model of what it is they do it's interesting because i mean obviously i think a lot of people thought white labeling was dead um to my mind, I kind of look at it's interesting you say that because I hadn't really thought about the white labeling aspects of the business much at all recently. But I guess just as better data 
and more visibility of data allows liquidity providers and their customers to have more honest conversations. So it would um, in a white label relationship, wouldn't it? Because you know, the traditional fear is the regional bank goes and gets a customer that the top tier bank doesn't want to see and they use it as a back door. But with the data now, that probably provides a, an even greater degree of comfort. And this is at the trading desk level, not the business level. Yes. But with that said, I think backing multiple horses is always a risky strategy if you're not that well yeah. equipped. And if if you're a tier three, tier four bank in a region, you probably rather value the relationship you have with the the, the, the top bank super regional in, in in your in that part of the world, because there's a, there's things other than just the price that you're getting from that relationship. You know, you're probably getting assistance with credit. You're getting assistance with um, loan intermediation you're getting assistance mm. with advice on other asset classes so i'm not saying that once these channels are set up they're they're strictly defined and i'm not saying for a minute that the lower tier banks aren't shopping around and making sure they they're getting sensible prices but yeah. they probably are focused on you know servicing their end customers as efficiently as possible and have probably enjoyed some element of having slightly wider spreads because of all the things they're doing for their customers because the customers in turn are probably less inclined to shop around because they've got lending mandates with that particular bank. So I'm not saying it's, I'm not saying there isn't competition by any stretch of the imagination because of course there is. And the point you make about the data is good because if the bank isn't going to do a decent job for the end small to medium sized enterprise, then a payments provider will. Yeah. Um, and all of a sudden what used to be a vibrant foreign exchange business turns out to be, you know, fizzling out as it gets lost to, to the payments providers. Hmm. It's interesting. There's some, there's some big challenges facing the industry still. You sense, don't you? In, as as we evolve, yeah. And I think it's all to do with, uh, yeah. I think it's all to do with, as I said earlier, not really changing the fundamental structure, but changing the cost economics within it. Mm, yeah. Um, I want to close out um, <clears throat> by discussing another challenge. Actually, um, this is where our American read, uh, listeners just um, start scratching their head in <laughs> in a questioning manner. But um, John and I are both. I think it's fair to say cricket tragics. Um, John, you had your first appearance of the season, which I have to say I admire you for, um, off of a, what would have been probably a 10-month um, break. Um, just to yes. let listeners know, John was very keen to let me know that he did pretty well with his first bowl of the season. But um, <laughs> I understand there was a problem. I'd, I'd like to, The question I'd like to you to address is, how can it be you go to the wrong ground turn up late at the right ground and get away without a fine. I fear, Colin, that uh, taking your listeners down this path might very rapidly take the population to listener singular from listener <laughs> plural. But um, <laughs> let's just I, say, we, we, you know, we, 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 we could all make mistakes. And I, and I misread <laughs> the instructions and indeed turned up on the wrong ground. Well, that has satisfied the one thing I wanted to get out of this podcast, John, and that is a public admission of guilt on your part that you went to the wrong ground because, frankly, your teammates have let everyone down, including themselves. Um, on a more serious Indeed. note, um, that, was, that was fascinating because I think you know, this, <clears throat> this regional bank space is going to continue to evolve. And, and it's interesting to me that the more I talk to the top tier, the more they look at their banking brethren force as sources of you know um sustained robust 
business, you know, in terms of like relationships as well as as trade. So I suspect. Well, we've we've said it. You know, we've we've been saying it every year for the well, the ten or fifteen years that you and I've been working together. That fundamentally, this industry stems from the flow that's generated by world trade, and and, yeah. and that that can be local trade or it can be global trade, but that's where it all comes from. And um, I think sometimes we forget that, don't we? As an industry, I should say. Um, Right, well, um, that's it for this week. I'd like to thank our listeners for listening. John, thank you again for um, coming on and entertaining us on the podcast. Hopefully your um, team... Thank you for having me. ...will listen to this and administer the appropriate fine. Um, (laughs) Very good. We'll be back next week. Um, In the meantime, have a very good week. Thanks for listening.